Now hear God's holy word from Psalm 37. Pay close attention. This is God's holy word. Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in Yahweh and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in Yahweh, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to Yahweh. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Rest in Yahweh and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only causes harm. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, your word and your psalmist have directed us in a path and a way of living without bitterness, without anger, without animosity toward the workers of iniquity and toward the workers of evil. Father, this is a tall order and this is very difficult for us. So we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would educate us, that you would strengthen us and that you would confirm your promises to us so that we can rest and hope in you completely. We ask you to do this today as we study your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. How easy is it for you to forgive and forget? Depending on your background and your upbringing and your family culture, it might be exceptionally difficult for you to let things go. You may have grown up in a family that had a notable propensity toward grudges and longstanding disputes. You grew up with a general understanding of we don't talk to those people anymore, or we don't have anything to do with that side of the family. And you might have grown up without ever really understanding why it was that you don't have anything to do with those people anymore. The population of greater Appalachia, families of Scots, Irish, and English descent are particularly known for this wonderful attribute. We're known for fighting and feuding because they were all in constant conflict over in England uh, when they lived across the ocean. Then they moved over here and they brought it all with them. They picked up where they left off and then you know, they became the Hatfields and McCoys. And, and those of us who know that culture, that makes sense to us. That's perfectly understandable that there would be a generations long blood feud and that nobody could let things go and, and it keeps on going for generations. There are particular aspects of this culture that contribute to an inability to live peaceably. They have an extreme loyalty to their people, to their tribe, to their family, and a high suspicion, a high suspicion of outsiders and strangers. They have a short fuse, a thick skin, a long memory, and it doesn't take very much effort to get them to never talk to you again. If you want to make that happen, it's very easy to, uh, to make that happen. Now, I'm sure that there are other cultures in the world that could be generally described this way, maybe the Balkans or some Southeast Asian peoples. But I can talk about this one because I are one. I know what this is. I'm descended from this great heritage. I sometimes wonder if our family motto was, I'll forgive you, but I will never forget. And I'm not joking when I say I heard that so many times as a, as a, as a young man from grandparents and uncles and aunts and cousins. Uh, that, was, that was the family motto. And then I remember growing up and as a young adult getting out on my own and then spending time with people who could argue pretty intensely, make up, 
and then laugh and joke with each other. And I thought, you can do that? That, you can let things go that easily? You don't have to brood for days? I thought after you argue with somebody, you're supposed to completely ignore them for the rest of their life and pretend like they never existed. Oh yeah, I know Tommy, he got hit by a bus. I mean, he doesn't exist anymore. He's gone forever. Um, you two are actually being friendly? How do you do that? That's crazy. I don't know how you get along after arguing. And some of you can relate to exactly what I'm talking about because like me, you have been thoroughly enculturated in the habits of bitterness. Bitterness is a deep, abiding, settled attitude of anger against someone you believe has offended or injured you. Bitterness is described in the Bible as a root. In the Bible, is called a root of bitterness that grows deep and it lodges itself in your heart. Bitterness is a gnawing resentment that lies under the surface, that, that occasionally reveals itself as, as animosity toward your offender. For this season of Advent, we've been considering a few attitudes of life and a few attitudes of the heart that have to be cleaned up and have to be swept out in order for us to truly rejoice and to make merry this coming Christmas. We're doing the work of preparation now so that sin and sorrow and guilt and regret don't mute our joy. Now, so far we've covered what to do with guilt and we've talked about what to do with regrets and how to manage those. Today, let's consider how we break free from bitterness. Now, guilt and regret and bitterness may sound like very similar terms, but there are significant differences. We experience guilt when we have clearly violated God's law and are in need of forgiveness. That is guilt. I have broken God's law and I need God's forgiveness. We experience regret over past decisions that didn't work out for whatever reason or when we have truly been forgiven but we're not living in light of that forgiveness. That's, that's regret. Both guilt and regret have to do with things that we have done. Bitterness has to do with sins that have been committed against us. So if you tell a lie and you slander someone and you're convicted in your heart, you're cut to your heart of your sin of lying, do you feel guilt or do you feel bitterness? Well, well, that's guilt. If I've lied about someone and I'm convicted about it, that's guilt. But if someone told a lie about you or has committed an offense against you, what do you feel? Do you feel guilt? Or do you feel bitterness? Well, if it's been committed against you, you feel bitter. You're liable to feel bitter. Now, by the way, when I'm talking this morning about offenses and injuries, I am assuming that we're talking about legitimate sins, things that people have done to you that have broken God's law, have broken covenant, have actually injured you. I'm not talking about um, non-events. Though it is very possible to hold long grudges over non-events, over miscommunications, over misunderstandings, um, but I'm going to refer to sins. And the very same process will apply to the non-events that we get upset about, the, the misunderstandings and the, and the miscues, except that the process ought to go really swiftly when it's a, when it's a misunderstanding that just needs to be cleared up or, or if it's a, a miscommunication. Same principles apply, um, but, but it should move more quickly. So, so when I talk about sins, understand the categories that I'm using. I'm assuming that if you are feeling bitter, if you are feeling hurt, it's over something that actually 
was a, was a violation of God's law. It's actually something that God prohibited that happened to you. So to be clear, we experience guilt and regret over our sins. But bitterness is what we experience when other people have sinned against us. We are prone to bitterness when someone has done something to injure and offend us and won't ask for forgiveness because they believe that they're correct. Or maybe it's an unbeliever who doesn't have a vocabulary of forgiveness or maybe they can't ask for forgiveness. Maybe they've been removed from us, or, or maybe they passed away. Or maybe they don't even know that they need to ask forgiveness because it was, it was a sin done in ignorance, and we haven't told them about it. So we may feel bitter when someone hasn't or can't ask for forgiveness, or if they don't even know that they need to ask forgiveness, we may still be bitter. At, at no point in this will I deny the severity of the offense against you. I'm not, I'm not going to say, you know, you just take it lightly, pretend like it didn't happen. That's what I'm asking you to do. Because I'm going to be talking about real sin, real injury, real insult. That may require some time and some work for you to restore trust. Understand that forgiveness and trust are not synonyms. If I were to steal a bunch of money from the church and get caught and, um, or convicted and cut to my heart, and ask you to uh, forgive me, um, and then I restore sevenfold what I've taken, um, you would be really not wise to go ahead and give me another church credit card or another church bank card for a very long time, because my trust uh, has, has, has got to be restored. I have to prove myself faithful. That doesn't mean you haven't forgiven me, and that doesn't mean that the restitution didn't work, but it does mean that it takes a while to restore and build up trust. So, so understand that I'm giving these qualifications up at the beginning um, so you understand that I'm talking about real injury, real insult, real sin, real wickedness and injustice that has been done to you. But bitterness is never a godly response. It's never among our options for addressing it. We've been over Matthew 18 so many times, and I know that you can quote it to me. You know what you are supposed to do if someone offends you. If your brother has offended you, you go and tell him your problem between you and he alone. If he doesn't listen to you, take two or three others. If he still doesn't listen and the two or three others are in agreement, yeah, this is a really big deal. This is something we need to pursue. You tell it to the church. You bring in the elders. You talk to, you talk to the church. Those are the clear directives that the Lord Jesus has given us. At what point in Matthew 18 does Jesus say, you know what? If it breaks down at this point, you're allowed to be really bitter about this for the rest of your life. That's not there. It's nowhere in there. So bitterness is not an option. Bitterness is a root that grows deep within us when we have taken great offense to someone else's sin. And when we store up that offense and we nurture it and we feed and water it and let it grow to the point that it consumes us. And whenever we're stressed and whenever we're anxious, we go back to that bitterness and we find comfort in our self-righteousness or we find comfort in our victimhood. And there's a part of us that feeds off of that as the offended one. That status of victimhood uh, gives us comfort. Because in, in that moment when we're speaking these things to ourselves, how righteously uh, uh, offended we are, we are the holy one, we are the noble one, we are so much better than the offender. And we confirm our piety to ourselves by lighting that little fire of hostility and loathing within our heart. David talks about this in Psalm 37. David says, you must 
Never do that. Psalm 37 is a didactic psalm. It's a psalm of instruction directed to the worshiper of Yahweh. And it starts off like this. Do not fret because of evildoers. If I were to ask you to define the word fret, you might think, well, fret, fret means, I mean, to fret means to be nervous or to, you know, kind of chew your fingernails or, or tap your foot or fretting means pacing back and forth. But the word here, the word fret is, to, is the same word uh, that's used in other places of, of kindling a fire specifically to stoke the coals of a burning anger. This is the very same word that was used of Cain when Cain was frustrated and envious of his brother Abel. In the King James Version, it translates this word when it refers to Cain as wroth, W-R-O-T-H. Use that word in a sentence sometime this week. I am wroth. And, and that captures it. It is, it is an uh, internal burning anger. Uh, in your Bible, it may say that Cain was angry in newer translations, but it's the same word. Cain fretted. Cain kindled a fire of anger. The same word is used in other places, like in the story of Jacob and Laban. Jacob's anger was kindled against Laban for mistreating him and taking advantage of him. It's the very same word. Jacob fretted against the evil that was done to him by, by Laban. So fretting is kindling a fire of animosity and stoking those coals. So David is not saying, don't be nervous over evildoers. Well, you shouldn't do that anyway, but that's not what David is saying. He's saying, don't carry a pail of fiery coals in your belly when it comes to those who work wickedness. Don't fan the flames whenever they talk and act. Don't nurse a root of bitterness. Why? Well, verse 2 for they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Your anger and your frustration is not effective. Your anger and your coals of anger that you have, you have stoked against uh, those who have hurt you, um, it adds exactly nothing to God's designs for them. Your job is not to kindle coals of animosity. Your duty is to trust and to obey, and to live in gratitude, and to take joy, and to delight. That's your job. Look at verse 3. Trust in Yahweh and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in Yahweh, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. That's the job description that we have in resisting the unrighteous and the evildoer. You know the best offense that you have against evil? It's gratitude, giving thanks to God and rejoicing in all that he is and all that he does for his people. When you aren't delighting in and enjoying God's good providences, you're disarming yourself. You're putting down your weapons. You are dropping the only effective strategy that God has given you to combat the darkness. Your weapons are joy and gratitude and delighting in and resting in God and all that he has given you. See, you see this all throughout the Old Testament scriptures. Israel is only victorious over her enemies when she is the joyful army of the Lord and worships her way and rejoices her way to success. So gratitude and joy and delight are your weapons against the darkness. There are more warnings of, uh, against fretting in verses 7 through 8. 
Rest in Yahweh and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only causes harm. He's used the word fret several times in just these few verses. And uh, there are more exhortations to joy and peace in in verses 9 through 11. For evildoers shall be cut off. For those who wait on Yahweh, they shall inherit the earth for yet a little while, and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more. But the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Don't be bitter. Do rest and be patient. Don't be better. Cease from anger, forsake wrath. Your fretting only causes harm, he says. It only causes harm. Nothing else good comes out of it. Your bitterness is entirely and always non-productive. The evildoers are done for, but the meek shall inherit the earth. And this is not to diminish the real offenses of the wicked. Their despicable deeds are not imaginary. They are very real. They just don't win. Verse 12. The wicked plots against the just and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked have a conspiracy. The wicked indeed plot together to take advantage of and oppress and abuse the righteous. They connive and they devise schemes and they plan. Do they have a plot? Yes. Do they have a plan? Yes. Do they have a scheme? Yes. Do you know who else has a plan? The triune and living God holds everything in the palm of his hand and all of his plans always come to pass. Isaiah 46 says, I am God and there is none other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. That's why you never, ever, ever need to fear the plots of the wicked. That's why you don't need to be nervous. Yeah, they have schemes. Yeah, they have conspiracies. Those things are very real. They have plans. So does God. Their plans fail and fall and crumble and disintegrate and collapse because they fight and they devour each other. The Lord accomplishes all the plans that he has designed. What does your bitterness over offenses add to his plans and his designs. We get bitter. We get upset. We nurse coals of anger. What does the Lord do? What does he do? What does he do in Psalm 37? The Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. If you're godly, then what will you do? If you are like God, what do you do to the plots and the schemes of the unrighteous? You laugh because you see that his day is coming. God laughs, even though that the plots of the wicked are in direct rebellion against his holiness and his lordship. They're direct affronts against his goodness. And yet God is not bitter. God is not sitting on his throne with his arms crossed, with his brow furrowed, slumped over in the corner and saying, everybody's just so mean to me all the time. Nobody will do what I want them to do. Nobody will take care of anything I give them to take care of. And they don't, they don't listen and they don't follow what I say. And I just give up. I just, I'm done. I'm just done with all of it. Is that the picture of God that you get anywhere in the scriptures? He's not stewing. He's not slumped over. What does he do? He laughs when he hears the plots of the wicked, when he hears their schemes. I could, big 
roaring belly laugh. They said, what? What? They, they're going to do what? Oh, boy. Yeah, we'll see that if it ever happens. I know it ain't going to happen. He laughs because he sees the futility and the vanity and the sheer emptiness and the hopelessness of their plans, and he knows what's going to happen. God is sinned against. God is not bitter. God does not fret. God laughs. Now, I'm very far from there. I am so far away from there. How do we get there? How do you and I get to the part where we can laugh and not carry these fiery coals in our chest that stoke a fire of animosity and nastiness whenever we recall an offense? First, we need to identify where we might be bitter and then deal with those people and circumstances biblically, address them in terms of the gospel and in terms of the work of Jesus. Let's look at a few markers of bitterness. Bitterness, number one, you know that you're bitter because uh, a bitterness, identif- um, I'm sorry, bitterness intensifies with the proximity of the sin and the sinner. Bitterness is a response to sin that has affected you personally. It, it has less to do with how egregious or severe the sin is and more with how personal the sin is. We could name Dozens and dozens of atrocities throughout the world and throughout history. I mean, study Mao Zedong or study Joseph Stalin or what's going on today in China or North Africa or the continent of, uh, uh, or North Korea. Um, these, these things don't provoke bitterness, though, in us, even though they're evils and even though they cause suffering on a scale beyond our imagination, uh, beyond what we can comprehend, bitterness is not what we feel about those. We feel sorrow, but it's not bitterness. Bitterness is not correlated to the magnitude of the sin, but how close the sin is to me and how much it affects me personally. The one person in all of our lives that we are most likely to feel bitterness toward is our father. He is the nearest and the most Uh, the most prominent authority in our lives. He's the first authority over us. And if he mismanages that position, either by being uh, uh, godlessly oppressive or by advocating uh, his role in our lives, if he's just absent, it can create a real lifetime of difficulty for us. Uh, So so we're liable to feel, feel a lot of bitterness toward our fathers. Everybody's got daddy issues. You know that, right? Everybody. You got daddy issues? Yeah, me too. We all got daddy issues, right? Um, and dads need to be aware of that. Dads need to know the imprint and the, and the power and the role and the presence you have in your children's lives and take that seriously. And well, some of you may say, well, it's not my dad, it's my mom. Well, she comes in second. We cultivate the most bitterness for those who are nearest to us. Mom and dad, brother and sister, husband and wife, children, other close family members and grandparents. They are closer to us. They have more access to us to offend us. They have more opportunity to hurt us. You've got no problem with the guy who lives six streets over and two blocks to the other side from you. I almost can guarantee that for everybody here, you have no problem with the guy that lives on the other side of your neighborhood. You could be in absolute disagree with, disagreement with him on every point of theology or philosophy, but I almost guarantee you, you are not bitter against that guy. Why? He doesn't have any access to your life. 
He's never sinned against you. It's the people in your own house, in your own family, the people who are closest to you that you are most likely to sense bitterness toward, who cause the most and longest lasting pain when they sin against you. So the evildoers and the workers of iniquity that David was singing about in Psalm 37, these are not abstract wicked people. It's not, he's not talking about some potential evildoer in the world, some hypothetical worker of iniquity. The wicked who plotted against the righteous in David's life were those in his own household. Uh, David was adopted into Saul's house and became like Saul's son. And, and David's surrogate father, Saul, grew to loathe him, to hate him, and did violence against him and, and pursued him to take his life. David's probably talking about Saul in uh, verse 35 and verse 36 of this psalm. David sings, I have seen the wicked in great power and spreading himself like a native green tree. Yet he passed away and behold, he was no more. Indeed, I sought him, but he could not be found. It's probably talking about Saul. Who else could it be talking about? David's son Absalom put together an army to overthrow his father's kingdom. So when David talks about not fretting against evildoers, about resting and waiting for the Lord to deal with wicked men, he's not talking about some random Philistine 500 miles away. He's not talking about some Ammonite that he passed by one time. That's not what he's talking about. When, when, when he's talking about uh, not fretting against evildoers, he's talking about the people he has shared a roof with, people whose dinner table he has set at. When he says, don't kindle fires of bitterness, he's talking about people who are very close. So, so who are you bitter toward? Most likely, it's someone you're very close to. The second thing you need to know about bitterness is that it accumulates and it spreads itself to other people. We let it pile up and snowball these, these offenses that we have gathered up against other people when they have offended or injured us and we haven't dealt with them the right way and we sit and nurse them as a coal, a, a pile or a pail of coals. We, we, we nurse it and let it pile up and the more we feed it, and the more we tend to it, the deeper and sicker and more intense your bitterness becomes. It doesn't fade into the past. Your bitterness gets clearer and more intense and more laser focused the longer you harbor it. You dwell on it. You live on it. You relive the hurt. You relive the moment. David says, don't do this. Don't dwell on the evil. Depart from evil, he says, and dwell in the good land. He uses the word dwell three times. He uses the word wait three times. He says, rest in the Lord. Bitterness doesn't do any of those things. Bitterness is impatient. Bitterness is feisty. Bitterness is reactionary and cannot wait on the Lord. So it builds and builds and builds and accumulates. And then when it reaches a breaking point, bitterness explodes. Bitterness erupts. The lid comes off and all of it spills all over the place. Hebrews 12, 15 says this, look carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble. And by this, many become defiled. When that lid comes off, many are polluted and corrupted and provoked to anger themselves. Your bitter root will eventually produce bitter fruit. Your bitter root will always eventually produce bitter fruit. And you end up sharing that sick fruit 
that nasty fruit with everyone. And it's foul and it's destructive. And, and see, as long as you're keeping this thing inside, you're making yourself sick. And you think, well, I got to manage this and I've got I've to get rid of it. So you spread it around and you make everyone else sick. If you do not cut out the root of bitterness, it will only continue to eat you up from the inside out and it will eventually spill out of you and defile others. The third thing you know, need to know about bitterness to help you identify it is bitterness remembers details. Many of you have read that wonderful book, How to Be Free from Bitterness by uh, Jim Wilson. I, I make it a point to read it through at least once a year. How to, How to Be Free from Bitterness by Jim Wilson. Uh, it's, it's a short booklet. I read it through every year because I'm a hillbilly who keeps grudges. And I, I know exactly what this is like. And I know, I know what, uh, what he's talking about. And this is one point that always stands out to me. He writes that bitterness provokes you to review review, review. We typically don't remember all the details about the best days of our lives. I mean, if you think back to the best day of your life, you may remember a song or you remember, you remember some smells and some images, sure. But when we're bitter about something, when you think back to that event that really, really hurt you, you have reviewed that thing so many times that you remember what you were wearing you remember what the other person was wearing, what time it was, what, what you had for lunch, how the, how the wind was blowing, the precise temperature and the dew point. You have it all remembered. You have concentrated yourself on that painful memory for so long and you have reviewed it so often that you have a sharp, detailed HD TV picture in your mind of that event. And every time you push play on the DVD player in your head, you go through the same pain all over again, and you rekindle your hatred for the person that made you feel that way. So if you're carrying something that fits that description, the memory of a sin that someone has committed against you, likely someone very close to you, and your anger is not diminishing, your anger is accumulating, and on some occasions that anger has spilled out, it's defiled other people, and you keep rehearsing it in your mind so that you remember every single detail, that's bitterness. And God requires you to put it away. God tells you to let it go. Get rid of it. Ephesians 4.31, the Apostle Paul writes, put away all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking with all malice, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you, therefore be imitators of God as dear children. Four commands, four directives, very quickly, what are they? Put away, be kind, forgive, and imitate. We'll look at each one of them for just a minute. Put away, be kind, forgive, and imitate. First of all, put away the bitterness. Bitterness is my sinful response to someone else's sin. I can't correct or work through the offender's sin unless I first handled my own sin. Until I've confessed my own sin, I am in no position to deal with other people. People may have mistreated you and committed horrific sins against you, but you need to understand that bitterness itself is a horrific sin. Bitterness is a sin for which Jesus died. Bitterness is not something to be proud of. Bitterness is not a badge of honor. Bitterness is not a virtue. Bitterness is a sin that Jesus paid for. And as long as you're storing it up in yourself instead of confessing it and dealing with it biblically, unless you do that, you are in sin. You are hardening your own heart. So humble yourself and put it away. The second thing Ephesians 4 says, he says, put away 
And the second thing he says, be kind to one another. Kindness is a good Bible word. God's loving kindness is his covenant mercy toward his people. He remembers his promises and God keeps his promises. Covenants have boundaries and covenants have clearly defined duties. Bitterness usurps the covenant. In bitterness, we climb up into the judgment seat of God and we assume God's role and we preside over the courtroom of our mind. We play out these little courtroom dramas whether uh, Perry Mason or, or Matlock or John Grisham novels, what, whatever generation you most relate to, we, we play these little things out in our head. We assess the evidence, we render a verdict, we declare the guilty person guilty, and then we execute them in our heart. James, in his epistle, he hits this right between the eyes when he says, there is only one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? Bitterness grasps for the throne of the lawgiver. It grasps for the gavel of the righteous judge. And and it climbs up into a seat that it's not been invited into. Cut that out. Don't do that. Be kind. That's what David exhorts us to do repeatedly in Psalm 37. Trust the Lord and do good. Leave the judgment to God. Leave room for God's wrath. And that means you must prepare your heart for the possibility of reconciliation. Prepare yourself for the opportunity to forgive and forget. Open yourself up and ready yourself to make things right. Orient yourself in kindness toward the other person even if it's going to take a while for this to work out, even if it's going to take a while for them to come around, even if it's going to take a while before they have an opportunity to come to you and repent, or if they never do, your orientation toward them is when they come, I am ready to forgive freely and fully and embrace them. Put yourself in a place that if they were to come to you today, you would receive them warmly with full and complete forgiveness. And that starts by putting down the gavel and putting down the executioner's axe and picking up the keys and walking down into the dungeon of your heart and unlocking the prison door and unlocking the chains and setting free the prisoners you are holding in your heart. Well, what if they don't ever ask for forgiveness? What if, what if they haven't asked for it and they're never going to? Even so... They're not your prisoners. They're not your convicts. They're gods to deal with. Entrust them to God. In verse 20 of Psalm 37, the wicked shall perish and the enemies of the Lord. They're the Lord's enemies. Like the splendor of the meadows shall vanish into smoke, they will vanish away. God is gonna take care of them. You turn them loose. So put away bitterness, be kind. And the third thing Ephesians 4 says is forgive. The best scenario for old, dusty, mothballed sins that have been junking up your attic is to let love cover it. Just let it go. Go confess your sin of bitterness to the other person and ask for their forgiveness and turn it loose. If you can't let love cover sin, if it's that severe, maybe it's even over something that is illegal. Maybe something needs to be taken care of. Maybe it's something that demands real justice you still confess that you haven't handled it the right way. And you say, this is something we have to deal with. I haven't dealt with it the right way because I've been nursing bitterness against you. I confess that and I need your forgiveness. And, uh, and you confess that you didn't handle it the right way. Uh, you, you've been telling yourself all these years, well, he knows what he did. 
Uh, he can come to me when he's ready. I shouldn't have to tell him what he did. You've been telling yourself that. Or maybe not. Maybe he doesn't know what he did. Tell them alone. Take two or three. Tell it to the church. Talk to the authority. But work toward peace. Work toward forgiveness. But not all sins fall into those neat categories, right? Something, sometimes you're bitter over something that someone did to you and they've moved away out of your life. You can't even find them on social media. You don't know where they've gone. Maybe the person that you're feeling very bitter toward is elderly or infirm and would never even understand it if you were to bring something up to them today. Or maybe they've passed away. The person that you are bitter toward is gone from this earth and they've passed on before God's throne of judgment and you're still bitter over something they did to you 30 years ago, what are you supposed to do? What are you supposed to do in those situations where you can't work it out with the other person? Well, are you permitted to be bitter for the rest of your life because that other person can't or won't repent? Does God give you a break and say, oh, oh, wait, wait, I understand. I got it now. The person that you're bitter toward, yeah, I understand. You can never work it out, so that's fine. I give you a pass. I give you a bitterness pass. You get to, you get to nurse a root of bitterness for the rest of your life. Here's your, here's your little card. You can stay the rest of your days enslaved to the other person's sin and warped by their sin against you. You're allowed to do that. That's your identity now, by the way. That's who you get to be. You're the real bitter guy who is wounded and angry and hateful. You're, you're that woman who can never love again because she was hurt so badly. That's your identity. Is that, is, that, is that a reality? Is that what the Lord Jesus does? If any of that that I just said sounds reasonable to you, you are still focused on the other person's sin and not your own. Your eyes are on their sin and not on your own sin of bitterness. You must leave it up to God. And by that, I don't mean throw up your hands. That's not what I mean by leaving it up to God. I mean, your appeal is to heaven. Your prayer sounds something like this. Father in heaven, I confess that I have been bitter and angry, and I have been stoking coals of animosity in my heart for many years over what Bob did to me. Please forgive me. Father, take this away from me. And please, Father, wherever Bob is and whatever he's doing, grant him your forgiveness. But I appeal to you, Father, deal with Bob in your mercy. That kind of prayer. Again, judgment is God's job, not ours. We say, well, I just can't forget it. Every time I close my eyes, I see the same thing. I feel the same thing all over again. Stop playing the tape over and over in your mind. When, that, when, that, when you see the credits start to roll, turn it off and pray, God, help me to forget this. Help me to cast this behind my back and to never bring it up again. Put it away, be kind, forgive, and imitate the Lord Jesus. That was the fourth thing. Does Jesus understand what it's like to be sinned against? I'll give you time to think about that. <laughs> Does Jesus understand what it's like to be sinned against? Yes. Is Jesus bitter? Does Jesus ever have a sinful response to anything that has ever happened to him? No. What did Jesus pray when men were in the process of putting him to death? Forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus knows what it is like to be mistreated. Young person who's having difficulties with friendships, listen to me. Jesus knows what it's like to be mistreated. Jesus knows what it's like to be friendless. He knows precisely what is going through your head and through your heart when you are betrayed, when you are rejected, opposed, manipulated, misused, abused, because Jesus was lied to. 
Jesus was lied about. Jesus was persecuted for doing the right thing. He was oppressed. He was threatened. He was flogged. He was friendless. He was homeless. He was abandoned. He was weary. He was vulnerable. He was exposed. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He was mocked. He was taunted. He was punched. He was spit on and he was crucified. You name it. You name the injustice or the shame or the misery or the pain and the Lord Jesus experienced it and yet was never bitter. Jesus is the mistreated one who meets us in our sorrow and is able to help us to manage our bitterness, handle it and overcome it. Because of the work of Jesus, our own sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west. Micah 7 says that he has hurled all of our iniquities into the depth of the sea. Isaiah 1 says our scarlet sins are white as snow. Imitating the Lord Jesus means allowing the same thing when it comes to other sins against us. You can forgive and you can forget. You can put it behind you and say, I'm never bringing this up again. Because Jesus has done that for your sins you may imitate him and you may do the same thing. So this Christmas, you may be stuck in a social situation with someone you feel bitterness toward. You may be headed into, a, into an environment where there's someone that you do not get along with. And if you know that's coming, there may be a phone call or there may be an email or there, there may be a text in order before you even get to that point. There may be a moment to draw aside and to have a deep heartfelt conversation. You may just decide up front, you know what? I'm going to commit this to God's judgment because I can't handle this, but I also can't be ruled by this. I'm not going to be enslaved by this. Whatever the wisest answer is, brothers and sisters, do not be ruled and overcome by bitterness. Do not fret because of evildoers. Trust in the Lord. Delight yourself in him and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Let's give thanks. Father in heaven, we pray that this indeed would be the work that we all engage in these weeks leading up to the great celebration and great feast that is coming our way, that we may not enter into this time of festivity with heavy hearts that are weighed down with anger and guilt and regret and bitterness and fear. Father, relieve us of these things in your mercy. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.